The following is my conversation with Harvey Silverglade, an advocate for civil liberties since the 1960s, an attorney, writer, and nonprofit activist, currently practicing law with the Boston firm Zilkin, Duncan, and Bernstein LLP. Silverglade specializes in criminal defense, civil liberties, and academic freedom for students' right cases. In addition to his legal work, Silverglade has led a parallel writing career as newspaper columnist and book author. Silverglade's career as legal practitioner spanning some four decades has ranged widely and has included drug prosecution, draft and riot cases in the 60s and 70s, bank and securities fraud, bribery and extortion, espionage, tax evasion, police misconduct, murder and manslaughter, habeas corpus proceedings, money laundering and desertion. In one of his first cases, he served as trial counsel for students charged with taking over University Hall at Harvard during an anti-war demonstration in 1969. He has since done substantial defense cases against charges of business crime without becoming labeled a white-collar lawyer. He has represented alleged illicit drug dealers without becoming a drug lawyer. He has represented several alleged organized crime figures without being deemed a mob lawyer. Silverglade's breadth of experience has given him perspective on the method and techniques employed by police and prosecutors, especially on the federal level, over the course of decades. Hi, Harvey. How are you? I think I'm the same as I was yesterday, which is good news. Perfect. I just want to start off with like a simple question. Can you give a little bit of background on the work that you've done, uh, of what your experience is like, and then we can go from there. Well, I'm a criminal defense and civil liberties lawyer. So I specialize in uh, representing people who are accused of criminal conduct. Uh, I also represent people who have been uh, unlawfully or unconstitutionally censored. That's my free speech part of my practice. Um, I do a lot of academic freedom cases representing students and faculty members uh, who were having trouble with uh, censorship codes, speech codes, uh, campus kangaroo courts. Um, and I also uh, do some work for uh, a foundation that I uh, co-founded in 1999. The found, it's now named the Indi Foundation for Indi individual rights and expression. It started out as the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education, but earlier this year it expanded its mission beyond college campuses, and so it altered the name. Speaking of freedom and censorship, and then also your work uh, under FIRE, like, you know, you're, you're coming up with uh, this foundation and this group in specifically for censorship and uh, against censorship and also for freedom of expression. Why is it such an important thing for you? Oh, I think freedom of expression is the single most important constitutional right because people have freedom of expression. They can fight for all the other rights. So there's a good reason why freedom of speech is the First Amendment to the Constitution, not the Fifth, not the Sixth, not the Twelfth. Um, and so uh, it's the single most important right that free people have. When that goes, everything else follows. And then, okay, let's go. Why is, was that something that you started off through education? Like, why was it there rather than like, you know, in common place for like everybody else? Well, I got interested in this because even as a young kid, I hated to take orders. 
And um, I was born in, in, in the Bensonhurst section of Brooklyn, New York. And that was a neighborhood that was 50% uh, Jewish and 50% Italian. And there were a lot of arguments between the Jews and the Italians, which is kind of interesting because they have a lot, the cultures have a lot in common. Um, and um, uh, the rule that we had as kids, the, the Jewish kids and the Italian kids, was that you can call any 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 name you wanted. You can launch any insult you wanted, but you kept your fists in your pockets. And that was the rule we lived by. And I learned at that early stage of my life, the first 10 years, that um, the, the, the slogan that we had was, sticks and stones can break my bones, but names can never harm me. So I learned to tolerate the most atrocious things that are said, as long as it was not accompanied by violence. That's why I'm a free speech absolutist. Aren't we like, you know, going in a different direction now where everyone's like, you know, everyone is, is this, there's safe spaces everywhere where like, you know, you can't say things that trigger somebody else. In fact, even like a lot of videos go like trigger warning because you just want to make sure no one gets hurt, no one's feelings are like, you know. I have to tell you that the word trigger warning triggers me. <laughs> I think it is the most absurd concept. Grown people, after all, students in college are adults. For them to look for safe space, there is no safe space in life. The only safe space is on, in, in an isolation ward of a psychiatric hospital or in an isolation cell in a, in a maximum security prison. And even then, you're not safe from the guards. There are no safe spaces in a free society. And when I say free society, of course, unfree society are less safe. So the, the idea that college students are entitled to safe spaces when life is, has no safe spaces is, is absurd. They're not wilting violets. I mean, they're, look, they're looking to get ready to go out into the world, and they're being given a wrong idea. Why is this happening, though? Because, you know, there was a time where, like, free speech was something that was advocated for. We fought for these rights. And then now, suddenly, they're, like, you know, we're going for safe spaces. And educational, like, you know, universities are, like, creating these young students who are coming out to the, like, you know, working uh, force. And they are just, like, you know, also so used to being, you know, coddled in a way. And yeah. why is that happening? I attribute it to the bureaucratization of institutions of higher education. Do you know that there are more administrators in higher education than there are professors now? And there's not enough for them to do. In fact, there's nothing for most of them to do. 95% of them can be fired and there would be absolutely no diminution in the quality of higher education. So what they do is in order to have, give themselves something to do, so that they can cash their paycheck every week, is they, they they devise these speech codes and then kangaroo courts to enforce them. If you got rid of the speech restrictions and the bodies that enforce speech restrictions on campuses, you can get rid of 95% of the administrators. You can reduce the tuition um, and costs of going to college by at least 40%, maybe more. Uh, and all around, there would be a huge improvement. Uh, 
but then why did this start? I know there's bureaucracy, but then like this started somewhere. Well, like most bad ideas, um, it evolved. And when one institution did it, other institutions did it. And um, it just happened. Um, what we have to fight to do is to un unwind this very unhealthy trend of bureaucratization in higher education. As you can guess, the administrators of most colleges don't like me. <laughs> Throughout your career, you've been involved with like different law firms. Could you highlight some of your key experiences or cases that like significantly shaped your uh, perspective on like civil liberties and individual rights then? Okay, well, first of all, I only worked for a law firm my first year out of law school. Hmm. I then went into, I started my own firm. Uh, I decided that I was not, I couldn't really work for anybody. I was not good at taking orders. Um, and um, so I've had my own firm since my second year after graduating law school. Um, because of my upbringing in Brooklyn, I early on um, took cases against authority. That's criminal defense, civil liberties, free speech, academic freedom. And that's really been the motif since that time. I should also point out, by the way, that my parents um, intended for me to go to medical school. They wanted me to be a doctor. Back then, that was the culture for Jewish male students. They were supposed to go to medical school and be doctors. Um, I mean, medical doctors, not PhD doctors. And um, during my sophomore year at Princeton, um, I won a fellowship to to, to, to uh, spend that summer between my sophomore and junior years in Paris. And um, it was the first time that I was away from my parents. It was the first time I was out of the country. And um, uh, I thought about my life and I decided that I really was not interested in the problems that germs caused people. I was interested in the problems people caused people. I came back and I switched from pre-law to pre-med to pre-law. And then the rest is sort of history. Um, I came to Cambridge, Massachusetts, go to Harvard Law School. As, just as I was graduating, I met the most fabulous woman that I ended up marrying. I had a 53-year relationship with her. She was a, a fabulous portrait photographer, Elsa Dorfman. And um, she died at the end of May 2020 of kidney failure due to the, uh, her early years of developing uh, black and white film roles with those, the, the developing materials had a lot of heavy lead um, uh, chemicals in them. They didn't know that at the time that it was very bad for kidneys, but she was 83, so she lived a full life. So you were also a journalist in Boston, uh, uh, provided like an addressing, and you worked on addressing a few important issues. Uh, how did your time as a journalist influence your late work as an advocate for civil liberties? Okay, for, first of all, you know I was a journalist before I was a lawyer. Hmm. Um, I went to law school initially because I, was, I thought I'd be interested in reporting legal issues uh, for some newspaper, uh, especially in Supreme Court uh, matters. Um, I changed my mind and decided to be a practicing lawyer and a journalist on the side. I, I write columns, I write uh, articles, I write books. So 
that has been my uh, that has been my uh, uh, career since um, I graduated law school. I, I decided to go into practice. Speaking of books, the Shadow University that you've co-authored addresses restrictions on academic freedom and free speech on American campuses. Uh, what motivated you to write this book, and what are some of the most concerning issues that you aim to address with it? Well, I, early on, I um, encountered in my law practice all of these situations in which administrators were punishing students for their speech. And I thought it was outrageous and very odd since it, they all, all the universities claim to adhere to what's called academic freedom. And yet they're punishing students and even some faculty members for saying things that were contrary to what the administrators thought was decency or, or uh, you know, correctness, political correctness. Um, and so um, that became a very large part of my my practice. Also, very early on uh, in my first couple of years of practice, uh, this country was uh, roiled in protests against the war in Vietnam. And I represented a lot of uh, students who were being penalized for, uh, for, for uh, uh, marches and, and protests that sometimes got very loud. Uh, against the war, I represented many, many people who were uh, who were indicted for failure to report for reduction of the armed forces to fight in this war that was so unpopular. Um, I represented uh, 200 Harvard students who were arrested for a mass demonstration in Harvard Yard, of which they took over an administrative building. They were they were looking for records of uh, faculty members who were. Uh, their words collaborated with the Department of Defense. Um, and um, my law partners and I got acquittals for all 200. And the reason, even though the evidence was perfectly clear, news, newspaper reporters had taken films, photographs of the, what they were doing, because the, the public was at that point so against the war that the jury simply acquitted despite the fact that it was very obvious that my clients had, in fact, uh, trespassed on Harvard's property, taken over the building, escorted faculty and administrators out of their offices. So um, I learned the power of the jury system. The, the war ended, ended because the American public moved, turned against it. And in a free society, you know, unlike Russia today in Ukraine, in a free society, you can't launch a war if the public is not um, is, is, is not uh, on your side. And why is freedom of speech so important to you specifically as an individual? And why is it so important as a nation? Like you've given examples, especially, especially of this war. But why is it so important in times of peace? Of, of course, the same reason that the founders of the Constitution put the First Amendment, free speech in the First Amendment, not the Fourth, not the Eighth. Because if you have free speech, you can protect all the other rights. As soon as you lose the right to free speech, the government can take away all the other rights. There's no protest, there's nothing to say, there's no intellectual discussion about whether these rights are important, whether they're guaranteed. 
So it's fundamental, and that's the reason it's the speech is in the First Amendment. And then speaking of like, you know, rights, what if you I'm not like advocating for it, but if there is a government system that allows, does not allow free speech, but cares for its publics in such a way that you would assume, and again, this is just me spitballing an idea and I want you to like challenge it, of course. And I don't agree with it 100%. But then they say that like, you know, this is how we keep a civil society, but not because not everybody's going to follow the right rules. And then there's going to be hate speech. And then you can't control everybody. But if everyone follows the rule of law. Okay. We, yeah. You've just, um, hate speech is fully protected. And it is, in my view, protecting hate speech is even more important than protecting love speech. Why? Um, I want to know who hates me because I want to know on whom I should not turn my back. It's as simple as that. And so the protection of hate, a lot of people say to me, well, you know, you're in favor of hate speech. Well, I'm not in favor of hate speech. Uh, I'm not in favor of hate speech, but I'm in favor of the constitutional protection of hate speech. And how so? How? What do you mean by that? Why is it so important? Because I know when you, there's hate speech, like people go, there are extremists who take hate speech and use it as propaganda. And then like, you know, there's a well, whole mass of people following I, them. I'm very interested in knowing who the haters are because that it, it's very important to know who they are. Those are the people you don't turn your back on. But then the argument would go imagine like you know like there's this whole thing let's say flat earthers this is not exactly uh, someone who can like harm you specifically but they say there's flat or uh, the, the earth is flat and then they have their own evidence for it they're like have their blogs they put it on websites on youtube for people to like consume there are a lot yeah. of people who don't understand basic laws they don't understand they might not even be educated and they believe that now there's a whole group of people believing that and that's because this person technically speaking yeah. Yeah. In the marketplace, in the free marketplace of ideas, free people argue about these things. And if you really have a free marketplace, ultimately, truth has a tendency to prevail. It doesn't always prevail, but it usually prevails. In the end, maybe for a few years, some crazy myth takes root. Eventually, these ideas, um, the, the, the truth prevails over falsity, eventually. It's not up to the government to make these judgments. It's up to people to make them collectively. You have been considering, uh, like you've been working on the second part of the Shadow University and uh, like you're, it's a book that you're working on. It's going to be published soon. How has like, you know, speech and freedom of speech specifically uh, evolved over the years? Has it gotten worse? Has it improved? Uh, what are the news, new ways that you would be addressing these issues? For a while, it was getting better, and then it turned worse. And it turned worse when universities started taking on a lot of administrators. And the administrators needed something to do. So they promulgated speech codes. And they promulgated kangaroo courts to enforce them. Because if you, as I think I said earlier, if you get rid of the uh, speech codes, you get rid of the kangaroo courts, 95% of the administrators can be fired and should be fired. And tuition and costs should be reduced by at least 40% it would have a tremendous beneficial effect in education of, uh, the, of, of the, our students. You've written a lot of op-eds in your uh, advocacy work. Can you explain your approach in crafting such uh, op-eds and also the impact you hope to achieve through these uh, 
like you know these works of yours like your, through your writings well op-eds are an important way of getting an idea out to the public more than one at a time it's like public publishing a book um the, the beauty of op-eds is um, not everybody has time to read a 240 page book but a lot of people have time to read a newspaper column it will take them maybe four minutes to read plus there are letters to the editor so um, i get a lot of uh, responses and i put my email address at the end of these columns so people write to me if i i also have a list of about 440 people mostly media people to whom i send out my published columns so it gets further disseminated and how have you seen it like you know affect broader broader discourse on civil liberties individual rights and how do you choose the issues that you want to write about um I'm, i have certain interests my interests are civil liberties and due process if i think that somebody is being treated unfairly by the government or by some university or by some administrator um, some government official um, and i can find the newspaper willing to publish a um, uh, a column on it i will write the column and, and get it published and send it out uh besides the topics that we've discussed already is there anything specific like that's currently political or like a social issue that like you're engaged in you're uh, thinking about and like you know it's in the early stages of like you know this seems to be very interesting to me well i can tell you right right now um i'm representing a, a lawyer named john eastman who was one of Donald Trump's lawyers during the attempt to, uh, to win a, a second term. Uh, and um, I find that um, journalists have, uh, to my horror, including journalists with some of the best American newspapers, have so biased against Trump that they have biased against my own client Eastman and refuse to look at what Eastman has done or hasn't done they attribute everything Trump did to his lawyer. The role of a lawyer, however, was quite different from the role of any, you know, any other person in our society. It is up to a lawyer to try to give the client the best advice to help the client succeed in what the client wants to do. So Eastman had a lot of theories as to why Trump could claim he won the election. And um, every suggestion he made was perfectly legal some of it was kind of far out legally, but that was his job to come up with the, the, the even if improbable, to come up with some theory that could be argued. And now he's under investigation. They're threatening to indict him. And of course, he's going to go to, if he's indicted, he'll go to trial and eventually win. He may not win at trial level. He may have to go to appeal. When my co-counsel and I are just today or tomorrow sending a letter to the Department of Justice arguing why he committed no crime. We've asked for a meeting. Hopefully they'll meet with us. Um, but, you know, it's as if they, their minds are made up. And it's particularly, um, it's particularly uh, offensive because um, uh, my view is that even if Trump is indicted, he should not be, nothing should happen to until after the Republican National Convention, because it looks like with candidate suppression, Biden is a relatively unpopular president, an unspectacular president, and it looks like the Democratic administration is trying to eliminate the leading Republican candidate to run against Biden. 
Now, I'm no Trump fan, far from it. But I do think that in a free society, you shouldn't have, this is like, you know, a banana republic now. You shouldn't have the, 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 the side that wants to win the next election try to eliminate the leading candidate from the opposition party. It really looks awful. It is awful. But isn't the say, isn't it, okay, going back to like, this might, again, correct me if I'm wrong, but this might go back to like, you know, every speech has its own space. Like they are using their, like, you know, it's like almost like their opinion and that's making decisions based on that. Right or wrong, I, I agree with you. This, it doesn't make any sense for use, using their opinions, making their minds up before a, like actual judgment has been decided on. Like what is fair, what is false and what's truth. And, but then their belief system is kind of, pushing them towards a direction where, you know, I'm going to suppress this because I feel like this would be against democracy. Well, it's against democracy to try to keep the voters from being able to vote for the candidate of their choice. So it is a fundamentally anti-democratic move for the Democrats to try to indict Trump before the, before the convention and then if he gets the nomination um, before the election. But then don't they say that Trump is like spreading misinformation, false information, and like they'd rather just in a way, like I feel like it's a shortcut method of like saying, okay, let's just shut it down until like, you know, it could get worse. And then we'll worry about it later. Is that their like, you know, direction that they're taking it at? Well, you know, you don't need, you don't need a first amendment to protect popular speech. You need it to protect unpopular speech. Hmm. One man's truth is the other man's disinformation. Hmm. That's to be decided in the great marketplace of ideas. It's not to be decided by the Department of Justice. Affirmative action is an ongoing debate in the realm of civil liberties. What are your thoughts on the balance between promoting diversity and ensuring equal treatments in various contexts? Well, um, having racial quotas in higher education is an obvious fundamental violation of the equal protection of laws. Um, we had a civil war over this issue, and um, the 14th Amendment guarantees equality under law. I do not understand how affirmative action is, is, is practiced, and when the Supreme Court approved it, the court said that um, it was an experiment for trying to get um, people in underrepresented classes, mostly African-Americans, to give them a, a boost in order to bring them up to par. Um, and um, that 25 years, it's now 21 years since that opinion. So it, the Supreme Court is a little, was four years premature, but it was obvious that affirmative action was gonna be an experiment, but it was not gonna be forever because it's an obvious violation of the constitution. And during that period of time, what did the American, uh, America do. It did not improve public education. Um, and um, and so people graduate our, our school systems as ignorant as they were 23 years ago. It's a terrible opportunity that was missed. And this, the court gave the society 25 years in order to try to bring uh, elementary and public education up to par so that we would need affirmative action. And they, uh, they blew it. Um, and um, I think now what we should do, since we're facing the demise of affirmative action, even though there are people who are trying to figure out ways around it, 
what we should do is have a, a emergency national program to improve elementary and secondary school education. And one way to do that is to not let the teachers unions run the schools, but have boards of education run the schools. And um, I think that that um, that's we've now given an invitation, an opportunity to do something that should have been done quarter century ago. Why do you think that's failed, though? Like, I know it was an experiment, but that went wrong. But why do you see, what do you see the key issues are with this? Well, the key issues are, if we're really going to be a society that treats people equally under law, we can't have um, special benefits assigned based on race. And if we're going to, 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 to stick with the Constitution, we're going to have to give a lot of kids in public schools a decent education is something that they haven't had. The, a lot of a lot of middle class parents have been sending their kids to private school because the public school systems have been failures in so many ways. It's terrible. So how would you explain where like you know it says okay sometimes people from like certain communities or like some certain backgrounds are not given the same opportunities. So giving them that those like, you know, extra like opportunities help them like, you know, come up on a level like that's better than they would their family, their parents would have been. So you're taking those away from them rather than because I know if there's someone who's from a, like a very rich background, they have those opportunities given to them and there are more chances of success versus someone who doesn't. Well, you see, people who are wealthier are able to pay for private education. Or if the kids go to public schools, they're able to pay for tutors for their kids. So those kids are no more intelligent biologically than others, but they don't have the same opportunities. The, the, the lower class kids don't have the same opportunities. And what I'm suggesting is if public education were improved, that disparity would be significantly reduced. But from their perspective, that's a lot more work than just giving, like, allocating, okay, a number of seats, a number of, like, you know, is that is that just like a shortcut solution to a bigger problem? Well, it's a lot more work, but nobody ever promised us a rose garden. <laughs> it's time to roll up our sleeves and get to work. Uh, okay, yeah, makes sense. The war in Ukraine has raised questions about international law and human rights. How do you view the roles of civil liberties uh, advocate advocacy in addressing global conflicts and crises? How do I, I? I didn't get the question. How do I? How? Uh, my question is: There's a war going on in Ukraine, and what does like the role of civil civil liberties and advocacy help in addressing global conflicts? Because this is not specifically the U.S., but like on a larger scale. Well, um, the reporting of the war in Ukraine has been unusually good. Um, and uh, I read four newspapers a day. And between the four newspapers, I get a pretty good picture of what's going on. And in the end, Ukraine is going to win this war. And one of the reasons it's going to win is it's a free society. A lot of the problems in Russia are caused by the fact that dissenters, both within the government and within the people, are not allowed to dissent. And so Russia has been allowed to make some horrendous mistakes because there's nobody to correct Putin because if they correct Putin, they find themselves in prison or worse, like Navalny. And so um, in the end, Ukraine is gonna win because it's a free society. How, see, the thing is with what 
becomes a little bit complicated, not to be the devil's advocate, but then the U.S. did also make, make such big uh, mistakes and big blunders with Iraq, with Afghanistan. They are free society, but and they technically won the war. Who, who did? Like, uh, I would say the U.S. won. They came in with their agenda and then they, they got what they wanted in a way, right? They were fighting for their rights, like, you know, when Afghanistan, like, you know, the Taliban came over, the whole thing happened. It was not great. And they were protecting themselves, which is fair. But then the whole thing with Iraq, it was a big blunder. Yeah. And so this was, again, civil liberties. This is something that, like, you know, about human rights going awry. And then how does one address something like this? Because it is now everyone is admitted to the fact that this was, again, not right. This was a big mistake, big blunder. But then it seems to be swept under the rug. How does that go? I know, like, I'm not saying that the U.S. is the same as Putin uh, and, like, you know, what Russia is doing justifies that. But there are so many, like, you know, things that have been done in the past. History has not been kind to any any country, any nation, where there have been grave, grave atrocities that, that have taken place because of massive blunders with different agendas. And we seem to just have a short-term memory. We forget that and then address the, try to address the problem that is at hand, thinking that, you know, we've evolved. But I feel like that is not the case. Well... The United States has gotten itself into a lot of wars that should they should never have gotten into. Hmm. And in the end, those wars, because we have a free press, the public turned against the government's decision in those wars, and those wars ended. And that's because it's a free society. The press was allowed to report the blunders and how those wars were going. Um, this is not true right now in Moscow. And it's, if it were true, this, the, the uh, war would have been over months ago. So um, again, free societies and free presses do make blunders, but in the end, there are self-correcting mechanisms based upon free speech, free press, and free elections. Do you feel like that is still the case? Because there are a lot more publications that are dying. Vice has recently filed for bankruptcy. Uh, I wouldn't say BuzzFeed, it would be like, you know, called journalist by itself. But what I'm trying to say is that there is a slow tapering down of journalists looking for work, getting, and also there have been like people say, I've said that like, you know, big magazines, big publications have been bought by XYZ. So the agenda and the narrative changes like that. It, what will happen is entrepreneurs, individuals, small groups will reconstitute media outlets and there will be a diverse media environment no matter what. Um, Elon Musk may temporarily have a stranglehold. Uh, Zuckerberg may have a stranglehold. But in the end, diversity of opinion will, will prevail because nobody can stop small groups from launching new media outlets. Uh, with your legal background, how do you assess the legal challenges faced by Robert Kennedy Jr.? And what broader implications might these challenges have uh, for speech, speech and dissent? Well, I'm not sure you, how do I assess what? The Free speech and dissent, like, you know, what's happening with him, what he's facing right now, and then uh, how might the how might this have an effect on free speech now? Because, like, people are shutting down what he's trying to say. Well, you know, the thing about 
take the current Supreme Court. It has reversed a lot of things done by the predecessor Supreme Courts, affirmative action being only one of them. Uh, it has uh, been very solicitous of freedom of religion, for example, there being some quite fundamentalist religious justices on the court. However, free speech cases have, have been treated very well by the current Supreme Court, very well by the current Supreme Court. And um, those are the areas where the liberals and the conservatives have agreed. And as long as that prevails, then things will in the long run, in the long run, will work out. Um, and we shouldn't get discouraged by setbacks, temporary setbacks, because we have to look at the long run. We'll all be gone someday. The society will, will continue. And I think that um, I'm not particularly worried by the current trends at all, because as long as free speech is protected, I think this self-correcting mechanism will, 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 uh, will prevail. The Hunter Biden situation has sparked discussion about the intersection of politics, personal conduct, and public scrutiny. What consideration should be taken into account when examining such cases from a civil liberties perspective? Well, my view is it's very unfortunate that Donald Trump is running and that Joseph Biden is running. Each of them has some significant um, shadows in his closet. Um, the Hunter Biden thing is outrageous. Um, and um, the, the president should have declined to run for re-election. He didn't have to blame it on the Biden situation. He could have said, you know, I'm 80 years old and it's time to let younger people come in. I think that's true, by the way. I'm 81, I'm practicing law, but I'll tell you, I'm not a candidate for president of the United States. Um, and I Trump, the same thing. He's too old um, and um, I have no problem with being controversial. That's up to the voters. But I think age alone is a problem. We have minimum ages for running for president. We don't have maximum ages. Maybe it's time to say that that the president, that this is a maximum age, you know, maybe 70 or something. If you're more than 70, um, you can hope for a cabinet post, but you're not going to be president. Um, so um, so I, th I would be better off if neither of them were running. There are some very, very good candidates in both parties who would uh, run. There's some of them are running in the Republican side. Um, and, um, but uh, it's just unfortunate that we, we right now have a gerontology in this country. Do you feel like there is a, like, you know, a leaning towards uh, a more democratic world, like, you know, approach towards, not democratic, like, you know, the, the press is more lenient towards the Democrats versus, like, let's say the Trump voters. Because when, just before Trump was running for elections the first time, there was this whole question about his health and he had to come up with a clean bill of health and they were making fun of it. There was something like, you know, oh, his IQ levels are too low or whatever. I feel like at this stage, given Biden's health conditions, he wouldn't pass most of them himself. Yeah. Uh, that conversation is not happening. Is that well, because- Well, the role, the, the press has, has really fallen down in its role in the last few years. And the reason is what's called Trump derangement syndrome. They so hate Trump that they have lost the ability to report objectively. If I want to find out what's really happening, politics, I read the Wall Street Journal. The Wall Street Journal is a conservative paper. It has limited news coverage because it covers mostly business. 
but they do cover national politics. I can believe what I read in the newspapers of the journal. I no longer believe what I read in the Washington Post, the New York Times, or the Boston Globe. And that is a, a very sad commentary on the major press in this country. Um, it's, as I said, Trump derangement syndrome. They, they, they have lost their sense of objectivity. They confuse the news pages with the editorial pages. It's a very bad development. I think it'll self-correct at some point, um, but right now it's it's pretty bad. Do you feel like this was triggered? I'm sorry, I know triggered triggers people, but do you feel like it was triggered by when Trump was in office? He would have his uh, like you know come the press come and come over to her, to the White House and go like, oh, this is fake news, or literally bully. Uh, people from uh, the press saying like, you know, why are you here? You don't get a, a right to ask questions or like okay. be very combative. I think that the problem is it is a lot of fake news. So they have enabled this pre this former president. They enabled him. He charged him with fake news, but the news is so fake that they were made this, they made themselves vulnerable. And that just made it worse. Uh, but Harvard University, let's go back to that, has been a focal point for debates on free speech and inclusivity. What is your assessment on the current state of free speech at Harvard and its uh, and academia more broadly? Like we've kind of touched upon that earlier, but let's go a little bit more like, you know, focus the lens on Harvard right now. Well, the problem with the universities is that the universities are primarily not even liberal. If they were liberal, they would worry about academic freedom. Liberals worry about academic freedom. They're progressives. They have a political institution should not have, especially institutions of higher education, should not have political agendas. The universities have political agendas. And that's why I'm writing, I'm co-authoring a follow-up book to the Shadow University to point out that this is a terrible development. And it's going to destroy liberal arts education if we don't do something about it. Uh, throughout your career, you've likely encountered like a lot of challenges and resistance. How do you personally handle pushback while continuing to advocate for your principles? How do I handle pushback? Yeah. I argue against it. I don't have any other power. I have the power of the word. But what about consequences? Because now we live in a society where you could be doxxed, cancelled, uh, people, a mob can come at you sometimes on social media or they threaten you with your life. I don't think social media changes the picture at all. We should enforce laws against violence, but we should not enforce laws against noise and arguments and disputes. Um, the correctness is decided by elections, not by a diktats and fiats. But there are some people who, they're, that, that's how they make their bread and butter. Like imagine I'm a YouTuber, for example, and then I come up with like an opinion that I people disagree with, and then I'm doxxed. People want to shut me down. I'm losing subscribers, for example, and then it becomes difficult for me to make, like, you know, manage day to day. So I start like, you know, changing my speech so that like, you know, I please everyone. You can never please anyone, but then you're never saying, speaking your truth. Well, I have to tell you, boycotts are protected by the First Amendment. It's a marketplace of ideas. It's up to each of us to make ourselves heard one way or another. It's but, simple as that. Yeah, but then I, I wouldn't want to say something because it's like, see, 
every like imagine you're in an office and certain opinions don't agree with the bigger crowd you disagree you voice your opinion there's a chance you're going to get fired you know in an office an employer has a right to for example control political disputes within an office if it's interfering with the work of the office those are private not governmental organizations so an employer has a right um, I don't think it's a good idea to shut down um, political discussions among employees, but the employer has the power to do so, and, um, and correctly so. Um, so that's not a good forum in which to voice unpopular opinions, you know, your, the office. You could save that for after the, your nine to five sh shift. Speaking of going back to digital communications and social media, how has technology and advancement uh, in like, you know, the way we communicate with each other changed the landscape for civil liberties and challenges of individual rights? Well, the, as a result of social media, every Tom, Dick and Harry, including the most ignorant, the most biased, um, the most prejudiced, have a platform for voicing their views. I think that by and large, that's an improvement. You don't have to own a newspaper in order to have your voice heard. It has introduced, though, a certain amount of chaos to the public marketplace of ideas. It's, it, it's allowed some fanatics um, of both the left and the right um, to have platforms. But it's very good to know who they are. Um, it, if you suppress their speech, it doesn't change it changed how dangerous they are. It just hides the uh, it hides the danger. So we at least know. So through speech, free speech, we know whom to watch out for. Speaking of free speech and then also negative speech in a way is Andrew Tate. I know he's out of like you know home uh, prison, so to speak. And there was this whole debate, and there still is a debate about him influencing younger boys. Uh, on also his, you know, what Hustle University. And there are like two sides. There's one, he's like, you know, teaching men how to like, you know, be stronger, like stand up for themselves, have a career, not be bums. On the other side, the way he treats women, the way he talks about women, almost like their property. He, he goes back and forth with it. He waffles on the ideas like, I never said that, but then there's clear proof that he has said that, like, you know, women are his property if he are, he's married to them or he's dating them. And that is mixed in with, like, you know, very positive, reinforcing things that he talks to young boys about. So how does one disseminate information like that? And how does, like, because again, like you said, free speech, I agree with you 100%. But then influence to someone who's a very impressionable can be dangerous, right? Well, what's going to happen is, um, in the marketplace of free ideas, the free marketplace of ideas, there will be platforms that ordinary people can utilize. And they will they will come because there's a demand for them. Anytime there's a public need and a public demand, somebody jumps in um, to fill that role. Um, and um, it will happen. Um, I think in the long run, freedom works. Um, there are a lot of short-term problems um, there are short-term failures, but we're talking about the long term, um, and um, and that does work. It's 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 proven itself throughout our, the entire of American history when we have restricted views, when we had alien sedition acts uh, during the Revolutionary period, or when we had uh, free speech problems during the McCarthy period in this country. 
uh, we learned the importance of free speech, um, even if it's inconvenient or ugly or, or uh, uncomfortable. Your work often involves engaging with institutions. How do you approach collaborative efforts with universities and organizations to advance the cause of civil liberties? How do I approach what? Uh, how, how do you approach collaborative efforts with universities and organizations to advance the cause of civil liberties? How do I approach the organizations? Yes, and universities. How do you approach them to work together in such a way that, like, you know, your what you're aiming for works? Because I know, like, you work with Harvard University and your foundation, FIRE. So how does that work? And then is it expanded beyond Harvard? Yeah, and how well, is it? How FIRE works is this. If, uh, if they have a, an incident of suppression of free speech, they write a letter and a memo explaining why this was wrong. If they don't get a response, they send another letter. If they don't get a response, they file a lawsuit. We never file a lawsuit with giving, without giving somebody a chance to, an institution a chance to reform itself before we have to go to court. Uh, looking back at your extensive career, there are moments or cases that stand out to you particularly that is gratifying or emblematic of your progress that you've done on your work towards. Well, I think probably one of the most gratifying cases I had was my first big case, and that was when we got acquittals for the student demonstrators at Harvard who demonstrated against the war. We got acquittals and eventually the United States had to pull out of the war because of public pressure. Show me how many countries of the world um, pull out of a war because the public has decided that it's not a good idea. And that's what free speech and democracy is all about. Doesn't mean these countries don't make mistakes, but it's a self-correcting mechanism. And um, so I'm, I'm, I'm very satisfied with the fact that I represented dissenters in the Vietnam War. Uh, I've represented a lot of dissenters uh, after that, um, and I've always been happy to do so, uh, because I think dissenters force the society to look at what, what it's doing. Uh, as I said, you don't, have, you don't suffer the fate of Navalny in this country if, you, uh, if you've criticized the government, and that's crucial. Uh, as aspiring advocates for civil liberties uh, who are seeking guidance, what advice would you have to individuals who are passionate about protecting individual rights and what they can do to have a meaningful impact? Well, for example, lawyers. Um, I think that it's, it's very useful if lawyers divide their practice more or less in half, which is what I do. Um, you take pain cases, and then you that you earn a living, and you use part of that those funds to finance the what's called pro bono, the free cases that you do in the public interest. And I have never sought grants for any of this. Fire seeks grants, seeks grants, but that's a nonprofit. Um, People who donate money to fire can deduct it from their income taxes. Um, but I have always supported my civil liberties work with the fees from my private law practice. 
And that's how you gain independence. I don't have to worry about government grants or anything else. Finding the balance between security and civil liberties has become a reoccurring theme, particularly in the after, since the aftermath of the significant events like 9-11. How, how, how have your perspectives on this balance evolved over time? Free speech protects the security of a society. It does not interfere with the security of the society. There are those who say that in time of war, you should curb your criticism of the government. Exactly the opposite. Because by allowing criticism, the decision to go into war when you should not, when it's unwise, gets disclosed, get, you know, surfaced by a free debate over the wisdom of a particular war. So wartime is time for increased vigilance of free speech, not for, you know, we should, in the name of patriotism, we should not be criticizing the army or the, the secretary of war or the president, quite the opposite. It's more important to have free speech in those kinds of situations. Do you feel like that was kind of curbed a little bit more during COVID era? I know people are scared to talk about it or touch it with a 10-foot pole, but there were like the non-vaxxers and then like, you know, everyone like either get vaxxed or like, you know, we don't even want to talk to you. And was again, not just freedom of speech, but freedom of choice, where it was again, people were forced into it, not specifically in the US, but the rest of the world. A lot of people were just like, you have to get the vaccine. You can't enter government buildings, public spaces without it. People are entitled to not take medical treatment if they want it. It is a totalitarian society that dictates what you can put in your body and what you can't. Um, if there's a public emergency uh, due to a, a, a pandemic um, uh, where uh, you know you, you, you can't protect yourself, that's different, story, but we can't protect them. Those of us who want to get vaccinated, get vaccinated. The people who don't, they take their own risks. I think that's what a free society is all about. In an era of increasing polarization, how do you navigate the complexities of engaging with diverse viewpoints while staying true to your core principles? By uh, forcing an absolute First Amendment. And that's a very, very simple answer. When reflecting on your legacy, what key contributions or changes in civil liberties and individual rights do you hope to have achieved throughout your work? I haven't thought about my legacy. Okay. Uh, and lastly, uh, about the future of civil liberties advocacy and what are your aspirations on like do ongoing work with your foundation specifically then? Well, I'm very glad that FIRE has expanded the areas in which it works. I think it's an organization with great um, um, uh, uh, integrity. Um, it, it, um, uh, it doesn't change its uh, rules depending or its views depending on the political view at issue. It jumps in the left and the right to protect the left and the right of the political spectrum with equal alacrity. I'm very proud of the work FIRE has done. Um, it has not become partisan and uh, it is uh, stuck to being a principle so that I consider that to be an important if you use the word legacy I suppose I hate the word legacy but um, if you ask me about what I'm proudest of I say I'm proudest of, uh, of, of having co-founded uh, fire
Well, thank you so much for speaking with me. I just have one last question. Yeah. Where can people find your work? What are the books that they like you've written? And then, oh, like, you know, so that they can like at least uh, get an understanding of what you've done, what your thoughts are. Well, first of all, I have a website, barbysilverweight.com, and my articles are all on my website. Um, the two books that I've written that are the most um, useful is my first, The Shadow University, The Betrayal of Liberty in America's Campuses. And then I wrote a book uh, in 2009, updated in 2011, called Three Felonies a Day, How the Feds Target the Innocent. Those two books cover the free speech and the criminal defense work that I do. So that's that covers the whole gamut. Well, thank you so much for speaking with me. Okay, thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.